hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvellous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. What do you think about when you think about Jesus and his character? What would it be like to sit and listen to him teach? The reality is when we uh, look at the scriptures and the different kind of places in which he speaks to different groups of people, he's got a whole range in the way he speaks to different people. Often speaking to the lonely, uh, the lowly, the shameful, the outcast, the rejected. He's there bringing comfort, lifting them up, speaking words of truth and life to them. Other places, though, he's speaking to the proud. And when he speaks to the proud, well, he's there to take them down a peg. Often by being very provocative, to be honest with you. Very countercultural, cultural and uh, kind of uh, going after them in, 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 in one sense. Just being offensive, downright offensive sometimes. Just to make his point, to get the, trying to get the truth through to them. To be with hard hearts and hard ears and hard minds. And says some very hard things. And in the parables we've been looking at, there are some that fall into those different categories. This one definitely falls into the latter. He's definitely going after some people. In fact, it's in the middle, sandwiched between two others that he's been doing that. Last week, Joel was speaking to us about the parable of the two sons. And he's there addressing some religious leaders saying, you know, you're disobedient like one of those sons is disobedient. Next week, we're going to look at the fact of whether those religious leaders can ever actually enter the kingdom of God. And right sandwiched in the middle is this parable about disloyalty. And he's going after them. He's having a pop at them. He's setting up this parable, this story with a meaning that's sometimes hard to grasp, sometimes hard to accept. And it falls into that category. It's one that's a little bit hard to hear. Definitely for the Pharisees, these religious leaders, but maybe for you and me this morning as well. There's going to be some things in there thinking, oh, Jesus, are you saying that to me as well? And when he does, we've got to know that God does like to provoke us, does like to convict us. But we can also be confident that for those who love Jesus, 
believers in him, followers of his way, that he's not one who brings condemnation. He's not coming with a wagging finger this morning, maybe a prodding finger, but not a wagging one, but a prodding one to bring you to himself, to help you live the life that he wants you to live. So as we uh, listen to this passage, as we unpack it now, let's uh, just have our hearts open. And so our ears hope. And let me even choose right now to say, you know what, even if it makes me bristle a little bit, I want to hear what Jesus might say to me through the power of the Holy Spirit this morning. And for that, let me pray for us to start. Heavenly Father, thank you that you love each person who's watching. Thank you, you know our circumstances. You know the depths of our hearts. Lord, you know the things that we've never told anyone else. And uh, Lord God, and you're not just into exposing shame as you come to cover it. You come to forgive us. Uh, but Lord God, for that to happen, we do often have to bring things into the light. And I pray this morning might be a light bringing message that people might see you, see your glorious work and your love for us. And we might be changed to be more like the people that you want us to be. So Holy Spirit, have your way with us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this parable, it's quite a basic, uh, quite a basic uh, explanation for it. It's quite easy to understand in terms of different characters that the different uh, people represent. So it's the, there's a master, there's a landowner, that's God. And there's some tenants, that's the religious leaders in Israel. There's some prophets, there's some servants that the master sends to go and tell messages. That's like the prophets who have sent messages uh, to Israel right down through Israel's history. And then there's a son that comes in the end, which is Jesus. And the son that dies. So in that sense, it's quite easy to jump into it. But we still need to dig deep. What's behind some of those characters? What's behind their interactions? So let's start with the master and maker. Let's start with the landlord. And uh, I know the word landlord doesn't always necessarily inspire lots of confidence in us if you're a Brightonian. I have rented many properties in Brighton. I've had some good landlords. I've had some dodgy ones. Uh, some that are after as much money as they can with putting as little as possible back into the house. Maybe that's your position right now. Some of us think landlords can rank up there with traffic officers. And uh, so uh, if you're either of those things, uh, my apologies. Uh, but you know what I'm saying. But this landlord, God, he is not like that. He is good, he is generous, he is kind. His heart is good towards those he oversees, as it were. And uh, God, we see right back at the beginning of creation, he creates a world for you and me to live in, full of good things. He creates it, said, it is good. And then places us in it and says, you know, have it, enjoy it, enjoy every part of it. Everything except just one tree. He's very, very reasonable. God gives us the whole earth, gives Adam and Eve a whole garden, just says, hey, just leave that tree alone. Here in uh, this story, uh, we see him speaking to Israel. Israel, he took out of Egypt and brought into the promised land. A land, they say, flowing with milk and honey. Just kind of poetic language to say, hey, it's fertile. A good place for you to grow crops, uh, bring up your families, do life and community. And uh, this kind of parable also leans towards it's saying a little bit about Jerusalem as well. Kind of a, a walled vineyard. Jerusalem, a walled city with a tower in it for protection, a place to celebrate too. But right in the garden at the beginning of uh, creation, Adam and Eve, they didn't leave that tree alone, did they? They took the fruit, stole it from themselves. Wonderful kind of picture of all humanity. And God gives us lots of good things, but yet we still want more. We're not satisfied with the good he gives us where greed and pride step in. Here in this parable, we see he's given the tenants a really good vineyard with good resources, even put a wine press in for them. 
And yet, instead of giving the Jew, giving the fruit as they should have done, they stole it and kept it for themselves. And uh, God is just asking for that little something back in one sense. He's, what he gives to us is massively out of proportion in terms of what he asks back from us. He's a good and generous and kind God. I don't know what your experience of God is. I don't know what your view of God is. But you must start in that place. Know that God is good and loves you. He loves you right now where you are. He's interested in your life. He knows what's going on. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He's got plans and purposes to prosper you and for your good. The promises in the Bible over your life are many, 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 many. And all he requires in return is that we rightfully and fittingly given the worship due to him that we obey the things he asks us to do for his glory, that even those things are for us as well. It's when we worship, when we obey God with all our hearts, all our lives, actually that's where we find the shalom, find peace for our own lives. That's where we find goodness and joy. That's why this story links with us. So you might not be a religious leader or a scribe in Jerusalem. In fact, I very doubt very much that anyone falls into that category. Uh, but all of us, be those who rebel against God, who don't give him the worship and uh, the obedience that he deserves. And uh, right at the end of this parable, the uh, tenants are kicked out and the vineyard's given to someone else. Do you know who it's given to? It's given to you. It's given to me. It's given to the church. And so we want to look in on this story and say, we don't want to make the mistake of the tenants before us. We want to do right with God. We don't want to make the same mistakes so let's look at those mistakes. Though. Let's look at where those tenants went wrong. And they basically went wrong by having their view of things wrongly. They had a wrong view of their tenancy. Instead of realizing they were tenants, they acted as if it was theirs. I don't know if you've ever used the phrase, hey, make yourself at home when someone's come round. And uh, I don't know how English you are, but in my home, we're very English. Someone says that to me, I think, okay, that, what, what do I do with that? That means I might take my shoes off or help myself to another biscuit or something. You know, we don't really make ourselves at home. If I started saying, okay, great, actually, I fancy a little nap. I'm just going to go and sleep in your bed type thing. Or I'm thinking, oh, I quite might sell this home, actually, see what I can make on the market. Or I might think, I like what you've, you've done with your kind of downstairs setup. I'm going to knock through and make it a kitchen diner. Suddenly, I'm overstepping the mark. I'm no longer making myself at home. I'm making myself the home owner. I've got to say it's a tense. You know, make yourself at home. Enjoy the good things I've given you. And they just take it out. Or they take it kind of, they take, they, step, they, they step too far, don't they? They make themselves God. Don't make themselves at home. They make themselves God. The vineyard was not the tenants to do as they saw fit. Israel did not belong to the religious leaders to do as they saw fit. Your life, the things you have, this world is not here for us to do with it as we see fit. The vineyard, Israel, your life, this world, they're all made by someone else for someone else. They're made by someone else. Yes, for us to enjoy, but the glory and the fruit, where do they go first and foremost? They go to God. This really smacks against what this culture thinks. Almost universally held belief in Western society is that individual freedom is kind of the highest goal. You are free to do whatever you want with, with whatever you have as long as you don't do anyone any harm. We act as though all the things that we have are our, ours and ours to own. Well, I want to tell you on a number of levels, that simply is not true. Firstly, who gets to define what harm is? Who gets to say, oh, you can do whatever you want as long as it's not harm? Well, where's, where's the level at of that? Who, who gets to decide that? 
And though Western people like to think of themselves as mainly the products of their own decisions and choices, that is just not the case. Me and you, we are the products of our family, of our community, of our upbringing, our time in history. And uh, we are the result of kind of all kinds of investment in our lives by other people. Often before we could walk, often before we could even remember, people were inputting into our lives. And yet sometimes you think, I'm, I'm self-made. What I've got is mine. No, what you've got is a gift. A gift from God and often a gift from those around you. And even the thought of living completely independently, well, that's a fallacy as well. To live free of limitation is an illusion. Sometimes it can feel like that. Temporarily think, you know, I think I've got it all together right now. Maybe you're in that position right now, thinking my finances are okay, my health's all right, I've got a trajectory in terms of my job, my family, whatever's going on. But those moments, even if it's a long period in your life, won't last forever. There was a time when you were dependent as a child. There's a time again where you're dependent when you're old. And if you're ill or sick or you lose your job, again, you will have to be dependent upon other people. Independence, even if it exists, will only ever exist for a short amount of time. We are inherently dependent upon other people. And we are subject to forces and circumstances beyond our control. Has COVID taught us nothing if not that? People going into 2020 thinking, hmm, this is what I'm going to do with my life this year. Bang. Everyone, everything's flattened. You're going to stay in your home for three months solid. That's what you're going to do this year. We are the subject of all kinds of circumstances. We are not the independent people, the free people we sometimes think we are. Even the way we are very designed, we have limitations. Right now, I'm trying to learn Spanish. I'm trying to get fit. To do both those things, to be fit and healthy and to run as fast as I want, to speak fluently in Spanish, to be free in those things, which is a great aim of my life, it means I have to kind of put some restraints on my current freedoms. It means I have to put some time into my Spanish. I had an 120-day streak on Duolingo that I lost this week. I missed a day and I'm back to zero. And I can't get fit if I want to eat everything I want as well. I got, I'm free to do fitness, but I'm also free to eat whatever I want. But those two things don't get to go, go together. I have to make choices so I can have the freedoms that I actually want. In much of our society, many people may be looking in on Christianity. They say, you know, even Christianity is a limiter of freedoms. And I have to say, that is true. Part of becoming a Christian is knowing the freedom of God's forgiveness and the joy of his love. But it's also about coming under his lordship. The reality is it, the reality of that is that's a good thing. That's a wonderful place to be. Because Christianity is not about a religion with signing up to a set of rules and lordship of uh, some kind of, uh, uh, kind of cosmic force, but a person who loves us. And I met with a couple this week who just got engaged, a friend of mine, and uh, they were telling me about their proposal. And it was a very romantic uh, story. And they're kind of discussing about what's next, the next stages. And at no point did they say, you know, but obviously there's that kind of uh, difficulty that we've lost some of our freedoms. It means we can't date anyone we want anymore. And it means, uh, you know, suddenly she always wants to know where I am or he cares about what I've got to spend. No, no, they're happily planning their lives together. They want to be together. They want to know where each other are. They want to make purchases together for new homes and that kind of stuff. Yes, it's limiting, but it's special and wonderful. Much better than uh, having, the, having to have, have a, a relationship where you're trying to maintain the freedom. The two things don't go together. Coming into relationship with people means that we willingly give over our freedoms because of the relationship that we're entering into. Each of us 
I heard this recently, quote, a new day, made with a purpose on purpose. You are made with a purpose on purpose. We were built to know God, to serve and love him, to be in that relationship. If we try to live for anything else, it just leads to slavery. We end up kind of following those things, being wedded to those things. But when we begin to live for God and follow his will, we find we're actually becoming who we're meant to be, realising our original design given to us by Jesus. We need to embrace our positions as tenants in this world. Our life is God's vineyard that we are stewarding. Our families are God's vineyard that we are stewarding. The church is God's vineyard that we are stewarding. We apply it right across the board. Your finances, your health, your looks, your your job, everything. It's all God's that you get to steward for a short while. They all belong to him. And uh, if you're not a Christian yet, I'm encouraging you. You need to see that rightly. That's a massive part of coming to Jesus and surrendering your life. Say, okay, if I'm going to come to this, I want to receive all the good that God's offering. I need to know that my life then becomes his. I need to hand up willingly over to him. I'd like to say, speak to any of the Christians in the church and say, they'll tell you doing that is the best thing to do. And uh, my experience is it is the best thing to do. But it doesn't always feel like that. Had a conversation with a friend recently. We're talking about when we came to, first came to God or first came back to God. And uh, we were sort of discussing that. Uh, we were just like, Jesus, we want to live all for you. It's all out there. You can have it all. And uh, you pray those kind of zealous prayers, maybe as a young believer. And then uh, God says, okay, well, I'd quite like that. And that. And that. You're like, well, okay, but I'd quite like to keep this one. And can we just barter a little bit on this one as well? And um, yeah, that one's off the table totally. Sometimes we can get a bit like that with some things. Saying, oh God, I don't want you to speak into this area of my life. Or I don't want to live that radically. You know, you know I said I was all in, but not that all in. I'm not like that person. No, you know, just can we, can we kind of be, be a bit sensible, but sensible about this? And God's saying, no, I'm calling to radical obedience. To a life of flourishing comes with full obedience, wholehearted, chucking yourself into that relationship. If in my marriage I said, oh Emma, yeah, I'm happy to be married to you, but just on these terms. You can have some of me, not all of me. No, on my wedding day, I said, I'm all yours, babe. I'm all yours. Jesus was saying, God, I'm all in. This is all for you. Have you got that right? Have you got the right view of your glorious relationship with Jesus where he can ask anything of you? Have you got an end to this sentence? Jesus, you can have it all except. And what is that thing? In fact, maybe why don't you just pray right now? God, if there is something, would you show me? Or if you already know what it is, say, God, give me the courage to deal with it. So these tenants, they had a wrong view of their tenancy. They kind of treated themselves as owners. They also had a wrong view of the master's patience. This master, far from another land, just sent messengers back saying, hey, by the way, you stole me that fruit. Oh yeah, by the way, you stole me that fruit. And uh, these are tenants, they steal the fruit. And then they start beating up those servants and eventually start murdering those servants. And they think, what are, what are you doing? It seems irrational. Surely that is going to come back and bite you. But it's because they just mistook the fact that Master didn't come back himself. There's some kind of patience or, or kind of distance that made him think, well, maybe it's okay. Maybe he doesn't care about that vineyard that much. Maybe he's apathetic about it. Maybe that's how the religious leaders felt. Hundreds and hundreds of years of them kind of being in the power and position they were in, not doing it rightly, not encouraging worship. In fact, even earlier in that chapter, they've turned the uh, temple into a marketplace instead of the house of prayer it's meant to be. Enrages Jesus. Jesus upturns tables and flips them, up, flips them out. And uh, he gets angry about that. 
because they, they, they've just kind of uh, compromised on so many levels. Why? Maybe it's because they, again, think, well, God's okay with what we're doing. Maybe he's not even apathetic. Maybe he's even would affirm the way that we are currently leading. And maybe we could be the same. Maybe there's kind of uh, things in your life right now where you're making compromise. Maybe there's all kinds of sins that are maybe coming to mind. I can think of a couple that I was thinking about this week, thinking, uh, God, what is it you want to say to people? And I've got to say, maybe there's someone out there who's just stealing a little bit from work. Maybe not a lot, but just a little bit. No one, no one knows. No one would even notice. Maybe having more to drink right now. Oh, it's okay. No one's really being harmed by it. No one really sees. Maybe it's pornography. The stats would tell us pornography is definitely an issue for someone at the end of this lens. All kinds of issues. Maybe no one sees them. You know what God sees? The fact that God's not yet exposed you, the fact that it's not yet become a massive issue maybe, does not mean that God does not care. Grace is dangerous. Grace can be really dangerous. We believe in grace. God's unmerited love towards us. It's unconditional. It's unlimited in its scope. It really is. There's nothing too bad that you have ever done that God cannot forgive you for. Whatever it is right now in your mind, God can forgive you and wants to forgive you when you come and repent. It's unconditional and unlimited in its scope, but not in duration. There will come a time, as it were, when God's patience does run out, where his long suffering with us stops. Either when you die, where Jesus comes again, or even before that, God may say, that's enough, and stop it and expose you. Let me encourage you where you are right now. Don't take God's lack of intervention in your sin so far as a sign that your sin is okay. We need to bring that sin to God and say, God, I need to deal with that now. I know when God's put his finger on some things in me, particularly when I'm sitting in a meeting, I decide right then and then I'm going to text a friend. My friend Lee, bless him, has had a lot of texts. And I text him and say, hey, something's come up, let's talk about it. Because I know once the meeting's done, put the dinner on, deal with the kids, I'll forget about it. I'll stop thinking about it. It may be awkward to get your phone out now in front of your family, uh, but maybe before the end of the meeting, you just think, I'm just trying to text someone. Just let someone know there's something going on that I need to sort out with God. Because God did send them warnings, did send these prophets to speak to them. And they ignored them and ignored them. If we ignore God's warnings, maybe even this morning is a warning to you. The danger is the Bible says that we can harden our hearts and eventually God gives us over to our sin. It's okay, fine, you, be, you sit in it and we'll reap the destruction. We'll reap the reward, as it were, of what it, reap the consequences of what we've done wrong. Don't be in that position. Now, this parable, it ends uh, with the son being the person who comes and says it. The son ultimately comes and says to those tenants, what you're doing is wicked, you need to give up the fruit. And what they do, they murder him. Why? Because they want the inheritance. They want the land for themselves. And uh, the story ends with a dead son. And uh, the tenants being removed and are being replaced by others. And in one sense, that's not actually the end of the story that Jesus is telling. You know, Israel put into a good place, religious leading abused their position, kill the prophets, kill the son. Yes, that was all happening. But the son comes back alive. That's our hope as Christians. Jesus' resurrection. And Jesus is a good storyteller. So he doesn't just weirdly shoehorn it in at the end. He then speaks to them differently. He says, do you know the scriptures? which itself is a massive prod. He's speaking to the teachers of the law, the ones who are meant to be the experts in the scriptures. And he starts bringing back to them a song that no doubt they've been singing that week as part of the celebrations from Psalm 118, saying, oh, you know that song 
about the stone representing Israel that was once lowly, that people rejected, now high and lofty. That one you think that you are now, let me tell you, it's not about you. It's about me. It's about the son. The son that was rejected, the tenants rejected the son and killed him. The builders in this analogy, they have rejected that most important stone, that capstone. It's been rejected. It's been kicked to the curb. You know what? That stone is me. We don't see it in the English, but in the Hebrew, the words stone and son, they're very similar. My, I don't have good Hebrew pronunciation, but it's something like Ben and Eben. There's a play on words. He's saying, you rejected the stone. You rejected the son. The stone is being put into the most honoured place. The son will be put there too. That's what Jesus was. He came to die, yes, to be cursed on our behalf, to receive the punishment for the sin, in some of the sins I mentioned this morning, that we might receive forgiveness. And as a sign that he defeated that sin, he was raised to life. And then he's gone to sit with his father in heaven, sitting in the heavenly places, ruling and reigning. The one that was rejected now is the ruler, ruler and reigning over it all. And the great thing is, if you're a believer here this morning, you are ruling and reigning with him as well. You are seated with him. You are seated with him. And we don't need to grab for the inheritance like the tenants did. We don't need to grab after things in this world. No, everything is ours for the taking. God shares all of it with us. We move from being tenants and servants to being sons in the kingdom. We get to share this inheritance now and wow, there's inheritance to come. We look ahead and see Jesus, wow, we're going to be with you for all time. Not just in a one-walled vineyard, but in the glorious heavens, new heavens and new earth to come. Let me encourage you. If you aren't a believer yet, you don't yet know Jesus, your Lord and Savior. Let me encourage you, find him. He loves you. He wants to have a relationship with you. There is salvation only in Jesus. Don't be like the, the builders. Don't reject that stone. Don't let it come back and crush you. Stand upon the rock that is Jesus. For us as believers, there's a warning for us. Let's not be like the tenants. Let's not be disloyal. Let's not deny our own humanity, the vital link we have with the master. But let's live it out with him. Is he warning you about something this morning? Have you asked him? Have you asked a friend recently, do you see compromise in my life? Do you see disloyalty? Do you see a lack of worship or obedience in some way? Would you help me find that? Would you help me to work that out? And let me speak to you this morning. Maybe you're feeling a bit condemned by this. Don't. Let me read some words from Romans chapter five. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. In defiance of what we deserve, Jesus has died for you and died for me that we might not owe forgiveness and a new life with him. Away from him, don't hide from him in disobedience or in religion. Don't hide yourself away from the one who is faithful. Find in him the grace, the kindness, the forgiveness, the life, the joy that you need in order to be a fruitful son or daughter in the vineyard that God provides. Father, we pray in Jesus' name that you would help us each to see the glory and the beauty and the goodness of your son and be transformed to trust and love and obey him more and more. Amen.